Welcome back to Inside Personal Growth. This is Greg Voison, the host of Inside Personal Growth. And I want to thank all of my listeners, uh, as I do every time I put one of these podcasts on, because without my listeners, um, I wouldn't have a big audience. And I appreciate everybody who listens to Inside Personal Growth and tunes into these podcasts. Um, today, joining me from Minnesota is Chris Farrell. And Chris is the author of a new book called Unretirement, How Baby Boomers Are Changing the Way We Think About Work, Community, and the Good Life. Good day to you, Chris. How are you doing? Uh, I'm doing well, and thank you for having me. Well, thanks for being on Inside Personal Growth and speaking with our audience about a, a really important topic. You know, we reach a lot of baby boomers. We reach a lot of people that are still working in that category and happy to be doing so. I want to let our listeners know just a tad bit about you, Chris, though. Chris Farrell is the Senior Economics Contributor at Marketplace, American Public Media's national syndicated radio uh, business and personal finance programs. He is also the economics commentator for Minnesota Public Radio. And award-winning journalist Chris is a contributing editor for Bloomberg Business Week and personal finance columns in the Minneapolis Star Tribune. Chris is also the author of The New Frugality and lives in St. Paul, Minnesota. Well, you know, as this book kind of starts off, and I think for our listeners, and I heard an interview with you, which is what compelled me to reach out to you to do this interview, is kind of the contrarian position that you really take as somebody who's written in finance and economics, and I have a background in that myself. And it, and when it comes to aging and the impact that baby boomers will have on society, why do you believe that the times ahead are good and not filled with the gloom and doom, as many of your other colleagues with backgrounds in um, gerontology kind of believe? Well, I think we're underestimating changes in society and changes in our economy that are going to make it not only desirable, but also practical for a majority, not everybody, but a majority of aging boomers, and then as Gen Xers get older, and then as millennials get older, to continue to work and earn an income well into the traditional retirement years. And, you know, one of those changes is that, you know, boomers are well-educated and they're healthier than previous generations. And there are technological changes that um, I think will redefine what we think about disability. And I'll give you one example. Uh, I've been, you know, as you mentioned, traveling around the country and talking to people. And one of the things that has really struck me is there's this whole scholarly approach toward the driverless car. You know, you've heard about the driverless oh, car? Yeah, the Google and car. What, Right. And what they're excited about is the prospects that that opens up for someone who's homebound and can't get to work, or it's very difficult to get to work. Will this redefine what we think about disability? And people who are right, who are homebound today, maybe can commute to work if that's the sort of work that they want to be doing. So again, I think this uh, technology will help redefine disability. It's also, you know, we're having this conversation. Uh, you're doing a podcast. We live in this digital economy. You know, it'd be one thing if we were having this conversation in the 1950s and the 1960s as, you know, the factory work, um, mining, fishing, farming. I mean, these were the commanding heights of the U.S. economy. Today, it's social services, services, information technology, and it is much easier to work longer in a cubicle in a medical diagnostics office 
than it is to be mining for coal. Mm-hmm. And you know, you mentioned you you know you you have a background in personal finance and economics, and you know one of the things that has really struck me that we underappreciate in this whole conversation is how much the workplace is a social institution. You know, someone cares whether or not you show up. Um, someone has a baby, we celebrate that baby. Someone's getting a divorce, we help them get through that divorce. We like people at work and we don't like people at work and we gossip and, you know, it's a social institution. And in the surveys that are taken of people who have retired and they say, okay, what do you most miss about uh, the years you were working, the years before you retired? What do you really miss? And you know, top of the list, is always colleagues. Mm. Money's on there, but it's pretty far down. So I think, you know, works a social institution. So it's the camaraderie. It's kind of the camaraderie you're saying that people have, they build up in the workplace. That's right. And And the community, which is what you speak about. It's a community. Yeah. Yeah. And like all communities, we don't like everybody in every community, right? right. In families, we don't like everybody in our family. But, you know, these are sort of the, the ties that, that bind us. And I think what has happened over time with a better educated population, with a healthier population, you know, despite all the ups and downs so many of us have during our careers and our jobs and maybe multiple careers or multiple jobs, you know, the skill, the knowledge, the experience that we picked up over time, it's a big part of who we are. And fewer and fewer people are willing to walk away from that. They don't want to put in the 40, 50 hour work week. They don't want this mantra of doing more with less that's been going on for the past several years. But they still want to be useful. They still want to be helpful. And they have skill and they have knowledge and they want to continue to contribute to society. And, you know, most of us, all of us really want meaning, right? I mean, a big part of working and be engaged in our community and volunteering and, you know, all these activities we do, it's about having meaning and purpose. And so one of the ways that we can contribute is with the skill and the knowledge and the experience we have accumulated over the years. And people still want to do that and make some income. Well, so what you're telling our audiences and what the book definitely uh, says is that there's so many new things happening. There's the, this technology and the way that people are more mobile and the way that we've worked that's really set the stage for baby boomers to have a very interesting long work life, um, many different jobs and so on. One of the old adages in the financial planning business used to be, Chris, that you're either going to live too long or you're going to die too soon. And you went to these conferences where there was a lot of gloom and doom. And you speak with us, if you would, and refer to kind of the pitfalls of retirement planning because you don't even like the word retirement. Let's just put it that way. And you actually had retirement planning in an age of longevity. I think you went to a workshop somewhere. There was all these doom and gloomers there. But what impact... Do you do you really see for baby boomers? I do get that, hey, we can work longer because, look, I'm 60 years old. I'm sitting here talking to you over, you know, this program and doing this interview. And I understand my horizon is long as well, meaning long right. into the work years. But um, speak with us about that because it is a fine balance economically between – um, and I'll get into some questions um, uh, about Ketlikoff and, and Social Security for you in a minute. But what would what, you say we need to do? What is it that baby boomers need to do there financially? 
Okay, so there's a couple of things. You know, you're you're absolutely right. Um, there's sort of this very dire uh, cloud that hangs over the whole discussion about retirement, and that most boomers or majority of boomers or whoever numbers you're looking at have not set aside enough money for their tr- traditional retirement years. Mm-hmm. And I think there are two things to keep in mind. First of all, the impact of continuing to work. Now, this is typically part-time work, flexible work, temp work, contract work. Maybe starting your own business. And inconsistent work. A new inconsistent work, too, really, because a lot of it's contract work. work. Yeah, right? A lot of contract so work. So not Absolutely. predictable. Not predictable income. Yeah. But nevertheless, you know, the money that you're bringing in will dwarf whatever, for most people, will dwarf whatever they could earn off their savings in a really good year, like last year when the stock market was strong and the bond market also had healthy returns. Mm-hmm. And so it sort of changes the, the dynamics of what we think about uh, the standard of living of older workers and aging entrepreneurs if they're continuing to bring an income. Not what they did when they were 40 years old, but they're still bringing an income. And what that means is for most people, the kids aren't living in the basement. They're off launching their own careers. So if you're bringing some income, you can save some money. And if you, even if you can't save too much, um, you don't necessarily have to tap into your savings. And that has a big implication. And the most important thing from a personal finance point of view for the typical worker is that it makes it practical to delay taking Social Security. Ah, and that's taking Social Security at age 70 versus age 62, the benefit's more than 75% larger. Now, I listened, is- to, I listened to quite a, uh, um, a commentary on NPR the other day about when to take Social Security. There's actually books written about it and guys advising people, obviously. And, you know, there's kind of a whole controversy. What what is what position do you take on that? You know, some people say take it earlier, some take it later. It depends on if your wife was a beneficiary. So there's all kinds of issues around that. I don't want to get into the complexities of it, but it is a complex right. it is a complex arena, correct? It is a very complex arena. There, there are, you just mentioned one of the most complex is that whether you're single or whether you're married, uh, and then in terms of your spouse, whether she worked and when she takes her Social Security, there are kinds of twists and turns. Right. But I think uh, we, ha- we have framed, and framing matters, we framed the discussion, the individual discussion, which is when do you take Social Security? We have framed that the wrong way. The way most of us do it is we say, you can file for Social Security as early as 62. Mm-hmm. Now, you can also wait until you're 70, right. and that's when you get the maximum benefit. What I would argue is we should reframe the discussion and say, you, can file for so- you should file for Social Security at age 70. But if you need an income, if your health is deteriorating, uh, if there are reasons why you need to file for it earlier – you can file as early as 62, but you start at age 70 and work to 62. You don't start at 62 and work yourself up to 70. And a big part of it has to do is this is a way of thinking about I'm going to continue to work. I'm going to be working. And it shifts the focus of our discussion about retirement planning because you would mentioned what does this really mean for retirement planning. We've had a two- to three-decade discussion where retirement planning has been synonymous with how much money do I put in stocks, how much money do I put in bonds, diversified portfolio, asset allocation, 401K, IRA. And what I'm arguing is savings is important. Don't get me wrong. you got access to a 401K, put money into that 401K. 
But the key question is, what do you want to do next? Yeah. What is it that you want to do when you are leaving your employer and you're entering retire- the retirement years? You're retiring. Well, actually, what you're really doing is you're shifting to another job. What is that job? What will give you meaning and purpose and an income? And that's what you want to start to be focusing on as that retirement age comes closer. And then that means your most valuable asset is not your savings. It's not the money that's in that 401k. Your most valuable asset are your colleagues, your friends, your networks, the third degree of separation, the vendors, the suppliers, the people who know you, know what you can do. Because as an older worker, age discrimination is real. But if you tap into your network, they don't care how old you are. They know what you can do. They know Mm -hmm. who you are. They know your character. And that's how most jobs come about. So nurture your network. Think about what you want to do next. Do you need additional skill? Do you need an education? Uh, Do you need to take a lot of informational coffees? Whatever it is, that's what you want to be focusing on. Well, I appreciate your approach to this because I really think that it is it is a good way to look at unretirement, not retirement. And I think that's important point here is that you're you're trying to get people to shift the paradigm. And you say in the book, you mentioned that Peter Drucker say that once every once in a while in society we cross a major divide, and that we're crossing that divide now. Um, We are making this difficult transition toward a different vision of elder years is what you say. The different vision you've outlined a little bit, but let me take a little bit of that uh, opposite viewpoint here about the potential disaster in Social Security and Medicare and some of those listeners out there that are saying right now, hey, Chris, I get what you're saying, but I don't even know if Social Security is going to be around. Um, I, I don't know if it's sustainable. I don't know if this government can withhold it, and I want to get my money out as soon as possible. What would you tell somebody like that? Because I've heard plenty of those kind of people that are doomsayers going, man, I don't care when it is. I just want to take mine, right? (laughs) Right. Now, um, so my response is I think one of the safest forecasts that you can make is that Social Security is going to be around here. And one of the most pernicious conversations that has been held is this uh, screaming at the top of the rooftops that Social Security is a crisis, mm-hmm. and it's not going to be there uh, as as the population ages. Look, Social Security is the bedrock retirement savings plan for the United States, and therefore the population is getting older. It's going to be there. To, to reform Social Security, to shore up its finances, it's not that difficult as, as a percent of GDP. It's less than 2%. There's not a scholar out there uh, who does not agree, with the exception of you mentioned Larry Kotlikoff, who I love Larry Kotlikoff. He has a particular view on on Boston. He's from an economist at Boston University. He has a particular view on Social Security. In fact, there's his new book out. Uh, He wrote it with two co-authors. And at the end, they say, what about uh, the future of Social Security? And Kotlikoff says it's Armageddon. And uh, the other two co-authors both say, you know, it's a tweak here. It's a tweak there. There is no real crisis. I'm in the camp that says it's a tweak here, it's a tweak there. There's no real crisis. Shame on people for not dealing with it more quickly. Uh, but, you know, the way our system works is you have to get a little closer to, you know, trouble before we actually deal with something. And there's also what I would argue with Social Security, we sort of had this paralyzed conversation where it's about raising the age and raising the cap and mm-hmm. what's going to be the cap on Social Security uh, taxes. And, you know, it's kind of been stuck in that range. And what I'd love to see 
is how do we take Social Security and how do we you know, use Social Security to encourage people to work longer, not to mandate that they work longer or not to say, well, if you're not going to work longer, you're going to be miserable, but create positive incentives for people to continue to work, continue to pay taxes, continue to be engaged uh, in the workplace. And just give you one very quick example that comes from John Chauvin of Stanford University. And his has been, you've worked and let's say it, uh, you've worked for 40 years. And at that point, we just say you're paid up. You don't pay in Social Security anymore, and uh, you are automatically cheaper to your employer. You get a little bump up in your paycheck, and you're paid up in Social Security. Now, that's a positive incentive to continue to work. Mm-hmm. And there's lots of ideas out there like that right now. They're not getting traction outside of the think tanks. Right. They're not getting traction in, in, in Washington, D.C. I'm an eternal optimist. I believe that at some point they will because the population's aging, uh, the population is going to be dependent on Social Security, and people do want to be working longer. And really the only fundamental question is, how fast or how slow does this transition happen? And I'd like to see it happen faster. Well, one of the things in your book that I think, and I think that's great, I'm I'm an optimist as well, and I think that Congress can come to some... Uh, reasonable solution with relation to Social Security. And so for all those people out there listening, uh, as Chris just said, where you're doomsday, you're going to go get your Social Security at 62 and follow Larry. <laughs> that's that's fine. You're, there's going to be a certain number of you. But on the other hand, um, you need to rethink about your world. And you tell a great story about your old boss, Stephen Shepard, the longtime editor of Business Week. I want you to kind of tell the story and the dialogue that he had with Leonard Nimoy because it really actually was a really good kind of, um, I don't want to call it a turning point in this book, but obviously a key point that you were attempting to make and you did it in a great way. Well, I'm a long-time Star Trek fan. I mean, and I'm, you know, um, there, there are two kinds of Star Trek fans. I mean, we, we love the program, but do you like Captain Kirk or do you like... Mr. Spock. Well, he just and died. He I'm just a, died, didn't he? Eighty-three. He just he did. died like yes, what, he did. three weeks ago or something. A couple of weeks ago. That's yeah. absolutely right. So yeah. I just love uh, Letter Nimoy, Mr. Spock, and uh, I was reading Steve Shepard, and he was my longtime boss. He was a great editor at Business Week magazine, and then he started a, a program at. Um, uh, City College of New York Graduate School of Journalism, started their graduate school of journalism there. So he was about getting ready to retire at Business Week, and he had this offer to start this graduate school at uh, at, at uh, City University of New York. And he's having dinner with, with Mr. Spock. I'm going, you had dinner with Mr. Spock, Leonard Nimoy. And, um, you know, Steve Shepard says, you know, I, I mean, I, I really would love to, to start this graduate school of journalism, but, you know, journalism is kind of a young person's game, and I'm retiring, and, you know, should I really take this on? And Leonard Nimoy said, well, how old are you? And, and Shepard goes, 65, and he goes, well, uh, how long will it take you to get the program up and running? And about five years. And so Nimoy goes, so in five years you'll be 70, and that's what I am now. Mm-hmm. And, and Shepard looked at him and goes, oh, I'm going to do Yeah, that. I guess I'm going to take the job. <laughs> and he, he, he did a wonderful job, and, and uh, I may have it slightly off, but he, um, 
he's now, I know he stepped down as, as the dean, but he's still teaching. And I think Steve is, you know, he's in his late 70s now. Wow. And uh, is still a wonderful teacher. And But that just really struck me that Leonard Nimoy just really did a jiu-jitsu move on him and uh, or some sort of Vulcan move on him. And uh, uh, and yet it's it's a way I think... There's a slightly bigger point to that whole story too. It's I mean, how you I look try at it, it out on you. Yeah, it's really uh, your it's really your paradigm. It's you know, yeah. I, I think as you get older, I, I notice most old people, Chris, they have a tendency to kind of think myopically and in a box. And so you start to think, well, I don't have that many years left. I see my friends dying around me. You know, you you depends on how you where you want to go with it. But I would say that optimism, to some degree, if you were to look at it, starts to wane some bit for a lot of people, right? Um, and you're actually getting them to rethink that. And um, I love your story about Mark Friedman, who founded Encore. Um, and I think, tell us about this guy's optimism with the aging population and what he's done. I went to his website and I was just, I was awed at what's going on there. It's great. Uh, Mark, Mark, Mark Friedman is a, is a wonderful man. He's a social uh, entrepreneur, mm-hmm. and he started uh, a nonprofit called Encore.org. And if you go to their website, as you mentioned, uh, all kinds of good information. And he's on a mission to rethink the last half of life. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and this is a man who has a certain amount of optimism because he, he qualified for AARP, uh, his AARP card, at a time when uh, you know, he had three young children, very young children. Mm-hmm. So, you know, he's the definition of optimism. But uh-huh. on a more on a more serious level, what he what he's really encouraging people to do is let's say you've been working in the private sector and you know you've developed skill and you have knowledge is to take the skill and knowledge and work in the nonprofit sector uh, addressing some of society's biggest issues and biggest problems, and that there's an enormous opportunity here. And to stop talking about, oh, all these uh, older people and these elders and you know how frail and this is going to weigh in our society, and look at their skill, their knowledge, their experience. And this is an enormous opportunity. And it's not just an opportunity for the individuals to stay engaged, but it's an opportunity for society to say, you know, here are these people, and they, they're engaged, and they they have experience, they have knowledge, and we should be helping, you know, encouraging them and creating institutional ways, you know, not just individual ways, but ways that they can go and work in our inner cities and work with homelessness and work with recidivism and all kinds of issues that bedevil our society. And um, he's charismatic and uh, he's charming. And he also has a very good message, and it's getting out there. And really, I think this is why this is part of a this is a grassroots movement that we're seeing growing. This unretirement, rethinking the last third of life, it's happening at the level of local uh, communities, metropolitan areas, you know, uh, cities, towns. It isn't really hitting too much in the state capitals or in the the nation's capital, but that will happen because it is a grassroots movement that is gaining momentum. Most definitely. And one of the depictions of that in your book is you you tell a great story about meeting the executive at Herman Herman Miller Furniture, which is an interesting story. My wife's grandfather, his grandfather, great-grandfather, was Mr. Miller. Um, 
And you met a guy by the name of Don Goman. And uh, I want you to convey to the listeners about this Arion chair, which I went and looked the chair up last night. I sit on a similar chair, but not a Herman Miller one, designed for powerful ties between generations, old and young, and especially on the job. I think this is a this is a really interesting story because this is really about looking at cross generational uh, movement here. And wh- what are your thoughts on that? Well, you know, Herman Miller is one of the great uh, office design companies, mm-hmm. and I went to them because they published on their website a lot of very good research about older workers and exactly. about lighting and yep. a lot of issues like that. So I thought yep. this would be a great place to go and just sort of learn more about the practicality of people as they age, staying on the job, and what, what it might entail. And when I got there, I learned a story that I had no idea about, and it became one of the driving metaphors of the whole book. So uh, in the 1980s, uh, Herman Miller had this project called Metaform. And what the project was is they recognized an aging population that wanted to age in what's called age in place, wanted to age in the home. So maybe there's an opportunity here. So they gathered their top designers from around the world and said, rethink the bathroom, rethink the living room. And there were two designers that were given the task of rethinking the lazy boy, rethinking of the chair for someone who's 80 years old. And uh, they designed this chair, took advantage of a lot of materials, and it had levers, and you had to kind of use your legs to get out of it, but it would also help you get out of the chair and all kinds of stuff. And then Herman Miller shelved the project because they couldn't really figure out how to make money at it. Mm-hmm. And which is always for every business. At some point, they have to, you know, can we distribute it? Can we make money at it? And they decided they couldn't. Now we're in the early 1990s, and they call together their top chair designers because they'd reached a point where they needed to come up with a new office chair. They've been doing all this research about the modern worker and the laptop and the computer and, you know, how the modern worker worked. So they presented all this research. And one of the chair designers who had done the lazy boy, you know, the modern lazy boy, raised his hand and said, we've already designed that chair. The chair that they designed for the 80-year-olds, they took advances some more materials, uh, advances in materials, and did a couple of tweaks. But basically the chair they designed for 80-year-olds is the Aeron, which became the badge of creativity and youth in Silicon Valley. If you wander through Silicon Valley, everyone has an Aeron. When the Pentagon wanted to tell the world that they were creative and they were innovative, they went out and bought Aeron chairs. It's mm-hmm. at the Museum of Modern Art. And so this chair that is a symbol of youth and creativity and innovation was designed for 80-year-olds. Mm-hmm. And I think what that really says is, look, um, it's, we're in this together. And a lot of these divisions that we have about older workers and younger workers, you know, being opposed to each other, intergenerational warfare is all nonsense. And when yep. someone starts talking about intergenerational warfare, think Aaron, think the Herman Miller chair. I agree with you. It is all nonsense. We have a tendency to segment things in our society and try and, you know, give it a label, right? We put labels on people. We put labels on generations. And not that that isn't good for research work, but that's not going to allow people to come together, work together. Like, I think there's a tremendous opportunity in all of the succession planning that's going on between generations inside big corporations. 
Now, you state that the standards of behavior will change when it comes to old age discrimination, that the boomers' um, unretirement movement will transform career expectations. Where do you see this happening, and what are the trends that we can really kind of expect in the future? You named a few of them, but this is kind of my final question to sum up our interview here. So what do you, what do you see trending, Chris? Where do you see this all going for unretirement boomers and the aging population? Okay, so age discrimination is real. And I think over the next two to three decades, breaking down the barriers of age discrimination is going to be a major legal, social, economic trend in our society. Because, you know, one of, if you think about creativity, and we have an economy that values creativity and innovation, and creativity and gray hair is considered an oxymoron, right? If you have a project, and you need some really innovation, and you need some thinking outside the box, and you need people to be creative. No one thinks, let's go for these older workers, right? You're going to bring in these younger people. Because old people, they're, they're experienced, they're reliable, they're steady, but they're not creative. And what my argument is, is that is a stereotype, a classic stereotype, a classic prejudice. Now, if you're creative in your 20s, you're going to be creative in your third, in 30s, and you're going to be creative in your 60s and your 70s. And, but many older workers are not being given the opportunity to be creative. They're not being given the opportunity to be innovative because of these stereotypes that are holding them back. And we have seen that again and again in our society. Probably the most powerful uh, example is the women's movement over the past three decades, three, four decades. The women's movement has transformed what we think people are capable of doing. We're gonna have the exact same thing going on when it comes to older workers. But it's gonna be painful and it's gonna take time. But the exciting aspect of all of this is not what this means for the baby boomers themselves. Uh, Joseph Coughlin, he's the uh, infectious uh, head of the MIT Age Lab, calls it the Baby Boomer Retirement Improv Act. It's an experiment. Some of these experiments are not going to work out, and they're going to be painful. Uh, but the exciting aspect is what does it mean for the 20-something, the, the, the current 20-something? When they're in their 50s and 60s, they're going to have a very different vision of the last third of life. And then the really exciting thing is, then what does that mean for how you think about your life, your career, your jobs over a lifetime, a much longer lifetime. And I think it's going to lead to a lot more experimentation, a lot more risk-taking. And sometimes you're going to, you're going to be 60 year, year old and you're going to be at your, the height of your creativity. You're going to be 70 years old and you've never been more creative. And these opportunities are going to grow and they're going to expand. But it's going to take time and it's going to be a fight to get there. Well, Chris, there's a lot for baby boomers and people aging to consider. Everything from when they will potentially take their Social Security uh, and uh, how long they'll work into the future managing their money, uh, the places they live, and most importantly around all of this is their health. Um, and I think that's a big uh, an area that people need to consider. Obviously, when you're healthy and you can continue to work, that's a, that's a huge factor. Um, when you're not so healthy, you obviously need to have the resources to um, to keep your lifestyle. This book is truly interesting. I want to let all my listeners know, if you have any questions about your 
what you're planning on retirement, definitely read on retirement, um, how baby boomers are changing the way we think about work, community, and the good life. Uh, Chris certainly has um, great facts that he backs us up with, great stories in this book, and an opportunity for people to rethink um, what they might consider would be retirement. Um, Chris, thanks for being on Inside Personal Growth and spending a few minutes with my listeners informing them about um, the opportunities to unretire. Well, thank you for having me. 